The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudaman from The Homes Report. Thank you for joining us, as always. Um, and a big shout to our production partner, Marketeers, and to our sponsor, March Communications. We're joined in the studio today um, by Joanne Robertson, who is the Deputy CEO of Ketchum UK. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk quite shamelessly, I think, uh, purely about British politics today. So if any of you out there are listening to this and are not interested in British politics, then I suggest you keep listening <laughs> so that, you know, you might actually learn something um, or you might find it very boring. Or you might find me very boring. You won't find <laughs> Joanne boring. Anyway, Joanne, let's let's start with the, um, the, the general election, of course, which is coming up in, it's less than two weeks. It now? is a week on Thursday, a week tomorrow. Oh, wow. And that, so it's that's, come round quick. And when uh, the UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, um, our dear leader, when she called the election, uh, it seemed to be motivated by uh, the suggestion that she would have a landslide, she would win a landslide victory, and it could destroy the Labour Party forever. But polls recently show that the race has tightened quite a lot. May seems to have made various communications missteps. Um, I, I'm interested in your point of view. I mean, we'll talk about Jeremy Corbyn in a, in a little bit, but first of all, My let's talk... My favourite subject. Your, your favourite. <laughs> As uh, we should say, Joanne, you are a, a card-carrying Labour Party member of, of some standing. I was. Not? I oh, was. Okay. I resigned after the EU referendum. Oh, wow. Okay. And we can talk about, about why I did we that. We will, too. yeah. We will. We'll talk about that too. Uh, but let's talk about Theresa May. What, what do you think she's been doing wrong from a communications perspective, if, if anything? Well, I think what's disappointing about this general election, and I think this has been the case, you know, last general election too, is how um, unpolished and in many regards unprofessional the communication campaigns have been. You know, I was seconded to the Labour Party in both 2005 and 2010, um, and then I refused an invitation in 2015. Um, and over those three election campaigns, I've seen a complete deterioration in the quality of campaigning, the quality of uh, communications. And I think this is no different. And I think in part it's because um, we no longer, I believe, have um, politicians who fundamentally have a long-term vision for the country. And therefore, they're always shooting from the hip. They're always looking for an easy policy, something that's kind of a, a bit of a, a slogan, you know, that kind of rolls off the tongue that people can chat about in offices or at home with their families over dinner. And I don't think people really want that. I think politicians and political parties completely underestimate the intellect and the interests of the great British public in having a leader and a party that's leading the country that has a true vision, a true set of beliefs, a true set of convictions. So because they don't have that, they kind of flounder. Theresa May, I think, is floundering from one thing to another. 
And I don't think that's any different to what we saw from, um, you know, Ed Miliband in the last uh, general election or Gordon Brown uh, in the general election before that. So it's a trend of a deteriorating quality of politician and leader in this country, which is hugely disappointing. Mm. I mean, do you, do you put that down to the calibre of politician or is it the advice they're getting? I mean, presumably you would have worked with these sort of communications legends like Alistair Campbell and so forth. And yet, you know, he was one of the, I guess, the, the, the masterminds of, of, of this kind of rapid response uh, approach that perhaps is, is not necessarily helping when it comes to long-term strategy. But I think um, I genuinely, and I think this is the same in just general communications. You know, when I advise clients, I always say communications is not a magic wand. So if you don't have the right business strategy and you're not doing the right things, then communications can't fix that for you. Of course, communications can uh, make it appear and sound better than it might be, but it's only a sticking plaster. And I think that's exactly the same as um, politics. So you could have the best communications advisors in the world, but if you don't have a great long-term vision, a great long-term purpose, a sense of a belief system that you are trying to make the country a better place and these are the ways in which you're going to do it then again communications is just always swirling rather than helping to get you on that journey Mm. so I think in part it does go back to the quality of um, politicians in my view and also the I think that that as I said earlier that underestimation of the great British public I think there's this belief I remember having this conversation back in 2010 when um I was asked again to be seconded into the party to help with the communications and I really debated with myself over it because when I was there in 2005, I had no reservations, no doubts about my belief in Tony Blair and how right he was as a leader of our party and of our country and also the people he surrounded himself with, including Gordon Brown. You know, I really I did a lot of work with Gordon Brown in 2005 and really enjoyed... Um, helping him with some of the the broadcast media he was doing. But I fundamentally believed in Alan Johnson and Alan Milburn and Jack Straw. You know, you can rhyme off these heavyweights of politics who had ideas, they had conviction. When you engaged with them, they inspired you because you knew they were trying to do something to make the country better. And I loved the 2005 general election. It was a real highlight uh, in my career to date. And then in 2005, when I was asked to go in, I had real reservations. 2010. In 2010, yeah, Yeah. because I didn't believe in Gordon Brown. I didn't think he was the right leader of our party, and I certainly didn't think he would be a great leader of our country. But I went in anyway, and what was very different, because I felt a a loyalty to the party, I felt a loyalty to a lot of the party staff who were asking me to come in and and support them and what they were trying to achieve in in the comms team and in particular the broadcast team. And what I found, which I think is fascinating, is because Gordon didn't really have a plan, because he didn't have that vision for the country, when things were happening, so in 2005 when when news was breaking, when opportunities were coming up, we all knew what the vision was, we all knew what the policies were, so we were able to react quickly and we were given permission to react quickly. There wasn't huge bureaucratic approval processes. Fast forward to 2010... We never knew. We never really knew what we were selling to the great British public. Most of us didn't really believe in it. And actually, even when we had creative or interesting ideas for how to kind of get into the news agenda and try and own an area, the approval processes, because of the control freakery of that regime, were horrendous. 
And I think you can see that in the political parties now because there is no... I mean, you look at kind of Theresa May and, you know, there's a lot of um, people taking the mick out of her strong and stable uh, mantra. And I think people want strong and stable, so I think it's good from that perspective, but it's not a vision. Mm. It's a what she, you know, what what is she strong and stable for? Yeah, it's a tactic. It's a tactic, and that's why people are unsure of her, because they're like, yes, I want strong and stable, and of the leaders that are presented to me, she is the most likely to provide strong and stable. But what to what end? Where is she taking us? And I think when you hear some of voters who. Um, who basically are saying they're going to hold their nose and vote for Theresa May, it's because they want the stability, not because they believe that she is going to take the country in a great direction. Mm. And in terms of the of the polls, um, are you surprised that they're showing it to be a much closer race? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn seems to have eaten into Theresa May's lead and... I think we're all aware, perhaps, of how inexact polling is. In, <laughs> yes, has proven over the last 18 months. Yes, no doubt. I mean, in this, uh, the last election in particular. Um, but, but does it surprise you that it, it might be a closer affair than at first advertised? I mean, I, I suppose fundamentally I don't believe it. You know, when I am um, at the last election, I can say, and I do have uh, some people who can back me up, six months out from the last election, I called a Tory majority. Mm. And I said I thought it would be around eight or nine. And the reason I could do that at the last election was because I knocked doors in London, in Scotland, in Wales, in safe seats, in marginal seats. And I heard the same thing again and again and again. And in seats where the polls and Labour HQ were convinced Labour were going to win, I'd been there. And mm. I was you know, I was in no doubt that the Tories were going to have a better election than was being predicted. Now, I can't say that I've knocked on any doors in this election because uh, there's no way I'm going to advocate for anyone to vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be in a seat of power. But what I am hearing from my friend, I've got obviously still got a lot of friends, and they are hearing very similar things on the doorstep. You know, People are basically saying they do not want Jeremy Corbyn in a position of power in this country, that they, they think he would be dangerous for the country's economic stability. And I think... Yeah, we know from you know, behavioural research that when people go into the polling booth, even when they're unsure, unsure as they go in, that the two key things that are front of their mind is economic security and stability and defence. So hmm. when I put the cross in this box, is and it's personal, politics is personality-based these days, when I put an X in that Labour box, do I think Jeremy Corbyn is going to ensure that my family is safe from an economic perspective and will defend this country from any potential threats and on both of those questions I think the majority of people in this country will say no and so that that floating voter and those that are unsure I think will fall more in favour of the Conservatives. I also think the YouGov poll that came out last night is incredibly optimistic about the turnout of voters age 18 to 24. <laughs> And if they're right on that, that will be a phenomenal change in mm. British politics. But I I definitely have a feeling that they are way too optimistic on the turnout of that vote. Mm. Why do you think um, Corbyn is so popular with younger people? I mean, you, you're someone, you, you've, you've publicly disavowed him, you, you, you resigned, as you mentioned, from, from the Labour Party. And yet, 
you know, certainly on my Facebook feed, uh, it seems like everyone I know supports. Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I wonder if, you know, I rolled back the years to when I was 18, 19, 20, would I have had a positive view of Corbyn? And on the on the face of it, you know, he he has very populist policies. So when you're young and impressionable, when you haven't had to live through good times and bad times, you know, when when you don't have some the commitments of things like a mortgage or a, a family or parents that are dependent on you, things that really make you think much more carefully about the impact someone could have in the country, then the idea of um, investing billions more pounds in the NHS, the idea of you know, filling that full of more nurses, more doctors, the idea of free childcare for everybody, the idea of free tuition fees for everybody. I mean, it's a very attractive offer. But then the question comes, if you're 18 to 24, I'm not sure you really, at this point in your life, go beyond that that message. So you think, well, that, that sounds like a country I want to live in. But then if you're a bit older, you go, well, who's going to pay for it? Mm. And what are the consequences of that? And as I've got older, certainly, I mean, I remember being uh, that age and being very much all about universal benefits, thinking that it was, you know, critical to that um, social democratic base of British society. But as I've got older, I think it's mad that someone like me, you know, I've got a 10-month-old son, I think it's mad that someone like me would get child benefit. I don't Mm -hmm. need child benefit, but I know plenty of people who do, and so I would rather they got more than I got a share of it. The same when it comes to tuition fees. I fundamentally have an issue with people whose parents have chosen to send them to private school through primary and secondary. All of a sudden, they get to to uh, higher education and it's free. Mm. Why? You know, I definitely believe that those who need it the most should be provided for and helped, and those that can afford to pay should pay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of journey a lot of people go on in their life. I mean, they do say the older you get, the more right-wing you become. But in part, that's because you become, you know, there's a realist element. And I think what was so attractive about um, Tony Blair, and I think if you look at what Macron's doing in Mm -hmm. France, I mean, he is adopting a lot of those um, third-way kind of policies where you balance that out, where, of course, there is a social element of investing in public services but there also has to be a payoff you know it can't be nothing in life can come for free it's as simple as that and I think um, I think Corbyn is very irresponsible in some of the policies that he's putting forward. Mm. And what do you make of this view um, that, that you often hear that he's not he, he's treated unfairly by the media? Well I think all I mean I think Theresa May can say the exact same. I don't mm-hmm. think the the media is uh, particularly fair to mm-hmm. any politician. But do you know, and neither do I think they should be. Do you th- sure? But do you do you not perhaps think that the the certainly the more red media is more right leaning, so he's he's less likely to get a, a fairer hearing. Um, uh, maybe. I mean, I, I think that he gets as much airtime as anyone else. Um, I think it's up to him to put forward a professional view. I mean, I thought his performance on Women's Hour yesterday was embarrassing. And the fact that he was on his iPad trying to find the answer on his phone, he had a hard copy of the manifesto. You know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of time you create your own 
persona mm-hmm. you create your own environment mm-hmm. and it's been shambolic since the beginning yeah it's not hard to get this stuff right no. either is it and also i mean the thing that i find bizarre about women's hour yesterday is there have been so many gaffes in this short election campaign when mm-hmm. it comes to funded policies yeah, right. that you would have thought that they yeah. would have spent all of their time drumming the number into knowing that it's the question that they're going to ask yeah and I think there's this is a mistake I think the left and the Labour Party have made in their entire existence is they sneer at professional communications. Mm, you know, they yep. take pride in him being dishevelled, him not knowing things, you know, him not having that professional de- demeanour. But actually, I think that's wrong. You know, if you want to be a professional politician, if you want to be the leader of our country and represent Great Britain on the world stage, then take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Then prepare. You know, what you not to say you have to be suit and tied and slick, but you have to be able to present yourself and the country in a great light. And he, he's just not capable of that. Yeah, and 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 know how policies are costed. Um, how do you think this plays out then? Because it's is it's one thing is clear. There's there's a big rift in in the Labour Party, right? I mean. You've resigned. You you are, I guess, a classic centrist, um, Labour Party supporter. I, I suspect there are lots of people like you who feel disillusioned with the direction of the Labour Party, and you know it, it doesn't seem like the Liberal Democrats are necessarily a, a credible no. alternative. So what happens with when, you know after election day? How do you see this playing out? Well, I think, um, I genuinely think that whatever happens, it's a win-win for the Corbynistas and the hard left of Mm. the Labour Party. Because if, uh, on the one hand, they do as badly as was originally predicted at the start of this uh, general election, then the the people who lose their seats are, on the whole, moderate progressive MPs. So you're left with a Labour Party just full of hard left MPs. MPs who will back Corbyn or the mm. next version of him, and also at that point, you know, I think the you start to lose control of the party infrastructure. On the other hand, if he does better than um, everyone was predicting, and in fact, if you believe the YouGov poll and we're going to, you know, Labour's going to gain thirty seats, then that's an endorsement of the Corbynista, you know, mantra and, and vision and direction. And so, again, I think they have more of a vice-type grip on the party and the direction of the party. And, you know, in many cases, I think that, that that's going to push people, um, influential people, to really think about what comes next. And I really want someone to think about a new political movement rather than a new political party, because when you think about a political party, it's so old-fashioned. You know, the infrastructure needed for a political party, the rules, the, you know, it's very, very, you know, 1960s mm. rather than fit for modern life. And I think there's a real opportunity for someone and something to emerge as a new political movement using technology mm-hmm. to bring people together behind a set of belief systems, behind a vision for the country to crowdsource and allow people to contribute to policy development, to prioritise policies in terms of what's most important to people going forward. So I think there's a huge opportunity to create a political movement, something new, something fresh, something that reinvigorates people's trust and interest in politics and policy development. 
But alongside that, there needs to be some sort of challenge to the establishment and to the way in which we run our elections in this country. Because, again, first past the post Mm. really is in favour of the big established parties. Again, I think it's unrepresentative of uh, the country and of how politics should be should be run. So I don't think there's an easy fix and I certainly don't think we're going to see a centre-left government of any kind in the next kind of 10 to 15 years, which is hugely depressing for me. It is. But let's talk about something a bit more encouraging. How's Nicola Sturgeon doing? Oh, my other favourite person. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she is a formidable politician. Mm. Um, She, and again, I think she is a, to be clear, I do not agree Mm-hmm. at all with nationalist sentiment. Right, you're, yeah. I'm a heard, Scot yes. who is a hardcore unionist. Right, yes. Um, and it was a very emotive uh, referendum for me and for my family. So, um, you are know... You, are you all... Um, unionists? You all unionists, Unfortunately yeah. not. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so interesting. There, was some, there were some real family feuds uh, along the way. Oh. But... And it was an emotionally exhausting... Mm-hmm. Uh, time and you know I put my heart and soul into the um, the no campaign and so I really don't fundamentally believe with the premise of the Scottish National Party or with the single issue uh, that drives Nicola Sturgeon however of all the things I talked about that's wrong with British politics she is a great example of a professional politician she has a vision. Mm. I just don't agree with it, but she has a vision for Scotland. It's an independent vision. Um, she is, you know, determined in driving that vision home. She is a polished performer. She's a great auditor. She's inspiring for many people. And I, can't, from a professional point of view, I admire what she's done. I think she was a huge step up for the Scottish National Party from Alex Salmond, who was just bombastic and aggressive and unpleasant. Um, And I think she's done an amazing job. And I think it's fascinating how many people in England would love to vote for her. Yeah, I was just saying to you beforehand, I wish she was running. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of sentiment about that. And I think it's because we we crave a politician that we can admire. And as as I say, I do not agree with anything that she, she does or necessarily says. And, I, you know, I think the thing I find difficult about, um, and I, I have many debates with friends and family about this. Uh, I've tried to stop doing it on Facebook. But I have a real issue with the Scottish National Party and they are absolute, um, you know, distrust and, you know, they're really horrible about the union mm-hmm. but at the same time portray them as this the european union being the holy grail mm. and i think the the union the scottish national party and the conservative party are one and two of the same things when it comes to their fundamental belief they are both isolationists they both believe that it's better to close your borders than to open them up and that's why i always kind of put put them in the same the same bucket. But she herself is an incredible politician. She's done an amazing job for the Scottish National Party. Mm. And yet, with with all of these centre-left people, which was the driving force in British politics for, for the better part of, of 20 years, 
with all of them not not having a home, why 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 are they not um, gravitating towards the Lib Dems? I I think the Lib Dems betrayed. They are. I mean, they are not left of centre. They are. Mm. They're further left than um, the New Labour was. Mm. But they betrayed that fundamental belief system when they went into coalition with the Conservative Party. And I remember the, you know, after we had the hung parliament, I remember having a conversation with people saying there is no way on earth that Nick Clegg is stupid enough to go into coalition. He'll come up with some um, deal where, you know, the Lib Dems get some, you know, power uh, appointments, not necessarily in, in the cabinet, and they will offer support to the government on key issues and key areas mm-hmm. in return for support for some of their issues. To me, that was just common sense. It was the way in which you could have power, but at the same time maintain your principles. And I think if Clegg had done that, the Lib Dems would now be the second largest party mm-hmm. in this country um, and not, not Labour. But it's typical of politicians who often, I mean, a lot of politicians, I've got a lot of friends who are politicians, but a lot of them are power hungry. Mm. You know, they they want to be as close to, you know, the centre of that decision making. They want to be in the cabinet. You know, they want to be running a big department. And I think that over overruled the common sense gene uh, in Nick Clegg during that time. And so there's definitely a sense of betrayal for people who had put their trust in the Liberal Democrats. And certainly someone who is a centre-left in terms of my politics, I don't think they are the answer. Um, And I really am a genuine floating voter. So when I walk into the polling booth next Thursday, I have no idea when I'm going to put the cross. Yeah, me neither. And that's that's really distressing (laughs) for me. Well, it's like all the options are not great. No, exactly. You're kind of, and I fundamentally believe in democracy, so I will use my vote. Mm, you know, loads too. of people have said, spoil your ballot. I don't no. believe in that. I don't believe no. in a kind of meaningless protest. So I will have to make a decision at some point. But it is who is the lesser of all the evils? Mm. Because I don't believe anybody who's being offered to us is going to take the country in a direction that will really drive us forward. And you, so you resigned from the Labour Party. I did. And after you grew up, you're from a big a Labour family. Mm-hmm. Um, how big of a of a decision was that? Huge. And I, I really have been thinking about it for a very long time. I'd say I've probably been thinking about it for about eight years. Mm. So I, I found the way that Tony Blair was ousted from the Labour Party, uh, really emotionally troubling, and. One thing that I've never enjoyed is the machine politics of Labour. And, you know, when we talk about mm-hmm. Labour factions, we talk about Labour first, we talk about the old right in the Labour Party. Tom Watson is their uh, flag flag bearer. Mm-hmm. I find his type of politics, I find the way that they operate inside the Labour Party just despicable. Mm. And so I found the way in which Tony was ousted... And then what came next? They came without any plan, without any vision. It was shambolic and chaotic. And because of how they behaved internally, we let the Tories in mm. in 2010. And so I kind of started thinking about, is this party right for me, for me right from the moment that, um, that Gordon became leader? And I've always really struggled with um, my wing of the Labour Party, so the progressive wing. 
Um, because we've never, and, and partly I'm contradicting myself because we've never been about machine politics. So we always lose some of those big internal battles because we're about the ideas, we're about the policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time that was fine. But then, you know, we went from, we didn't challenge Gordon Brown. There was this idea, you know, this mantra that came from on high. We all have to toe the line, support him. You know, mm-hmm. there's like get behind unity and all of that. So I towed that line for three years. And then went into the leadership uh, battle where I obviously was a big supporter of David Miliband. I mm. genuinely think if he had won that leadership election, Labour would still be in power. Um, but Ed won. And again, that was another moment of reflection where I thought the direction that the party's going in is not one that I really believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stuck with it again. And thought, you know, sometimes in life, you know, whether it's in work or at home, you go through cycles where you just have to grin and bear it. So I grinned and bear it, bared it again. But what was really disappointing for me was as we kind of progressed through Ed Miliband's reign as leader and saw that, again, he didn't have a real vision and that he wasn't building support in the country that we didn't get ready for another leadership election. You know, the progressive wing of the party, despite my attempts at convincing people and Mm -hmm. trying to push that, we didn't get ready either from an ideas point of view or from an organisational point of view. So we didn't have a candidate, real candidate, and we also didn't have any vision ourselves. So, you know, then came Corbyn and um, (laughs) the absolute shock of Corbyn winning uh, the Labour leadership. And that was a huge moment for me to think this really is no longer a party that that represents me. But again, I thought I'll give it I'll give it some time, I'll see what happens. But the way in which we conducted ourselves as a Labour Party during the European referendum, I found to be despicable. Not only because we you know, Corbyn really is anti-European and I mm-hmm. think if he thought he could have got away with it he would have come out as a as a, a Brexiteer um, but it was the dishonesty mm-hmm. it was the way in which he and his cronies as I like to call them really tried to destabilise the Remain campaign mm-hmm. tried to be as difficult as possible I mean it was for me it was absolutely despicable and it was the final the final straw I mean I went to bed I was heavily pregnant at the time of the European referendum and the day of the vote. And I went to bed that night at half ten, because I was a lightweight at that time. And um, I remember watching the news and hearing Nigel Farage basically say... Yeah. Conceding. conceded, yeah. Basically saying, oh, and I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Went to bed. But being, I mean, I was uh, I was two weeks away from my due date, so heavily, heavily pregnant. I woke up at um, half three... I made the absolutely fatal error of looking at my phone Mm. and shaking my poor husband awake and saying, I think we're going to leave the European Union. And at that moment, I blamed Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party absolutely, Mm. completely, because we did not put the power of Labour behind the Remain campaign. Mm -hmm. We didn't give it everything that we've got. And I think that fundamentally has put this country in a perilous position. And I think that's unforgivable. And I resigned the next day. Wow. So you're up for grabs. I'm up for grabs, <laughs> but there's no one that's attracted me at the minute. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. So 
on on the topic of Brexit, I mean, you 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 you're also in addition to being um, a former Labour Party stalwart, uh, you're also an experienced public affairs practitioner, and now, of course, you're running um, one of the biggest firms in London. But how do you see the public affairs landscape being affected by the kind of interminable uh, spectre of Brexit, which which seems no closer to realisation? I mean, I'm aware, what is it, 11 days after the election, negotiations will begin, but I'm, yeah. I'm suspecting then they won't be over soon. No, I mean, I think... Um... I think the public affairs industry is seeing a bit of a, a short-term boom right now because mm. um, big business in, in this country is genuinely thinking about what do they do next. And they are also, um, the smart ones at least, are really in there lobbying mm-hmm. me and her team for what they want out of this negotiation, for what they need in order to be able to stay in support uh, the country going forward. So there's definitely a short-term boom mm-hmm. in which you know, talented and connected public affairs um, consultants are in high demand in terms of helping businesses navigate what's an incredibly complex uh, area. And then I think long-term, I mean, for me, um, I would say over the last six years, public affairs has been fundamentally changing Mm. Um, and I think there's two different things here. There's, you know, there's the ongoing long-term campaigns in terms of relationships with government and in terms of inf- like subtle, soft influence of government to um, take policy areas in certain directions. And then there is the hard lobbying for fundamental change to uh, legislation that's on the books. What will be interesting is I think that the latter, that hard lobbying, has been quite limited um, in the UK uh, over the last kind of 20, 30 years because of the European Union, because of, because of a lot of the uh, uh, regulation coming from the EU, whereas yeah. we're going to go through an incredible period of um, legislation. Yeah, we are, when we are, take back control. When we take, oh God... <laughs> Yeah, but there's gonna. I think there's gonna be a huge opportunity for talented public affairs consultants to be in the thick of yeah, that. Yeah, and a big window because I can't imagine regulating lobbying will be our top priority. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> it's interesting. I've got a lot of friends who who work in government, mm. um, who are civil servants, who are you know grappling right now with some of the legislation that they need to get in place within the next two years. Because at the point where that, you know, the guillotine comes down, we can be left exposed in a whole number of areas across, um, you know, finance, mm-hmm. through defence, through trade, um, environment. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and so I think in the short term, I think it's 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 a great opportunity for public affairs. Mm. And from a kind of global agency perspective, do you see... Um, maybe more moves to, to build a more robust Brussels offering distinct from from London? Because it has always been, there's always been this kind of tendency amongst the global firms to, to somehow group them together. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll have public affairs, London and Brussels, but that's not going to presumably be, uh, or it may, may not work, I guess, long term. No, I mean, I, to, I honestly haven't given it much, much thought at mm-hmm. this stage. I think I'm... Um, I think there will have to be more of a separation mm. than there once was. Um, and people will really need to think about you know, the business opportunity of London and of Brussels. 
Um, but I think people have, if you look at the history of uh, the big firms trying to set up great Brussels shops, yeah. there's, no, there's not a happy story to that's tell a, there. That's a good show. <laughs> there's not a happy story to tell there, so it's it's hard to crack Brussels. Mm, yeah, so I think there been... has to be that kind of weighing up of what is the genuine business opportunity there versus how difficult it is to get it right. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because Ketchum, I think, is I think the only global firm that doesn't do any... Uh, lobbying in Brussels yeah. has done really well, and yeah, and it's be, it was a an absolute strategic decision mm. um, that Rob Flaherty mm-hmm. made, and I I'm not ashamed to admit at the time I was a bit uh, well, I was a bit concerned was it the right, right decision not. to make, um, but he has been proved right. Yeah, you know? it's not it's not something that we have needed to continue to drive drive great growth uh, globally. Yeah, excellent. Well, we will await the election results with interest. I've got to ask you, before you go, mm. what's your prediction? Oof. Definitely a Tory majority. And I would say the Tory majority will be in probably not quite the landslide they hoped to have kind of over 60, but probably between 40 and 50. All right. Well, we have it on tape <laughs> for posterity. So, Joanne, thank you very much for thank your you. time today. We'll try and... Get you back on once all the dust settles, if the dust ever does settle. I feel like we're in a a period of of continual political tumult at the moment. Um, Thank you all for listening. You can find us, um, as always, on iTunes, uh, on our website, on our social media channels. If you do listen on iTunes, please do rate and review us. A big thank you to Marketeers and March Communications. um, And we will be back soon. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.